The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. A storm at sea meets a storm on land. This is Thursday, September 13th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. A million people have fled the Carolina coast as Hurricane Florence moves in. Ten million people are included in the hurricane warning area. Besides the destructive winds, the storm will bring historically catastrophic flooding, dumping more than three feet of rain onto land. This more than 300-mile-wide storm is making a torturous landfall today in North Carolina as a Category 2 now near the border separating the Carolinas. This more than 300-mile-wide storm is making a torturous landfall today in South Carolina as a Category 2 now near the border separating the Carolinas and then creeping slowly down the South Carolina coast with enough rain to last for days. It was downgraded because of a decrease in wind speed, but that made this gigantic storm even bigger, even wider, and increasing the danger of storm surge, which could shove more than a foot of seawater onto land. And it carries winds of up to 110 miles an hour. Three million people, three quarters of the population in North and South Carolina will be without electricity, possibly for several weeks. North Carolina is equally at risk. Mass destruction is certain in those states as well now as in Georgia. Catastrophic flooding. And there's been a lot of real estate development in the Carolinas since 1954. Business and residential. A lot more people live there now. More than a third of Americans now live in counties along a U.S. coastline. The storm is as unusual as it is fierce. Most hurricanes from the Atlantic make a turn, usually south, as they approach the shores of the U.S. President Trump says his administration is, quote, ready for the big one, perhaps forgetting the 3,000 Americans who died in Puerto Rico a year ago. Still, Trump used his tweet to the Carolinas to double down on his claims about his response to Puerto Rico, where many still have no electricity. Again yesterday, Trump claimed, quote, we did an unappreciated great job in Puerto Rico. Trump says Puerto Rico's power was already out before the storm. Many of the 3,000 who died did so because hospitals had no power to run life-saving equipment because of Hurricane Maria. Flood, water, and medical care were never delivered. Bottles of water still sit on the runway. There was a Trump administration mini-scandal in rebuilding part of PR's power grid. Trump calls his administration's storm response one of the best jobs that's ever been done, incredibly successful, and an incredible unsung success. This morning, he says 3,000 people didn't die in Puerto Rico. He says that's a number made up by Democrats to make him look bad, because it's all about him. As for Hurricane Florence, Trump says, we are as ready as anybody has ever been, absolutely, totally prepared, said Trump. But is the Trump administration, as he tweeted, ready for the big one? At the start of this hurricane season, the Trump administration had its mind on something else, housing the immigrants that were being arrested hand over fist and being separated from their children. And that program needed more money. So the Trump administration, as it is authorized to do, moved some money from one budget to another, actually several budgets to another. They moved it at the start of this hurricane season from the FEMA budget to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And despite administration denials that FEMA was robbed of disaster relief money, it was robbed of response and recovery money. Government documents show the money was taken from FEMA's preparedness, protection, response, and recovery operations. That money might have come in handy for FEMA with an unprecedented disaster that starts today, but it was spent instead on Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy. ICE got some $200 million in money that was transferred from the budgets of other crucial federal agencies. Money was also taken from the TSA and the United States Coast Guard. The Coast Guard was robbed of nearly $30 million, nearly three times as much as FEMA, despite the Coast Guard's history of heroic hurricane rescues, including the rescue of 35,000 people after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Trump's Homeland Security Department calls this news, quote, a sorry attempt to push a false agenda, while, quote, the administration is focused on assisting millions on the East Coast facing a catastrophic disaster. And Florence is not the only threatening storm in the news. 
Objects in mirror may be larger than they appear. Political polling is a reality. And for better or worse, it's important because it affects voter turnout, which affects the results of an election. If you think your candidate's about to lose, you're less likely to take the time to vote. If your candidate has a real chance, you're far more likely to put in your two cents. Likewise, you're more likely to vote for the candidate you believe will win. People like to back a winner. So polls are important. But are they accurate? The polls were right when they predicted Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote in 2016. She did. But because Trump won the Electoral College, the outcome reinforced and expanded people's cynicism about political polls. More people than before believed that polls were not to be trusted because the polls were wrong in 2016. But they weren't. The science of polling is exactly that. It's about calculating a truly representative sample of voters and then doing a lot more arithmetic. This is especially true with the big national polls. Statewide polls and those from smaller organizations have a record of being a bit less accurate because they're usually less sophisticated. Take Florida, for example where Andrew Gillum is the Democratic Party's candidate for the governor's race now underway. Leading up to the recent primary election, two polls, Gravis and Survey USA, had Gillum in fourth place. The pollsters at Florida Atlantic University had him in third. He finished first. Even the best polls develop blind spots. This year, pollsters seem to be missing a fair sample of minority voters. That's the best explanation so far for the surprise wins for African-American Andrew Gillum in Florida, for African-American Stacey Abrams in Georgia, and for Ben Jealous in Maryland. In the congressional races, there were surprise wins for Hispanic Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York and for the African-American Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts. The polls had Presley down by 13 points, and she won. The polls were wrong. The polls had an unexpected blind spot. This year's wide array of minority candidates is bringing out minority voters, including those who don't usually vote, and it appears they're not being counted in the polls. So how do we read the poll numbers we'll see between now and November 6th, since we'll mostly be seeing those statewide polls on our local races for Congress, Senate, and Governor? The presence of black and Hispanic, especially female candidates, has brought out voters who tend to vote Democratic. If pollsters have this minority blind spot, the news could be better than the polls would lead us to believe for Andrew Gillum and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other minority Democratic candidates. By evolution or design or both, the Democratic Party has embraced Americans who look like the people they'd be elected to represent, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, and more. In return, it appears that more people of color will go to the polls when there's someone on the ballot they feel can represent them. Millennials are also turning out, thanks to this more diverse and often younger array of candidates. Voter enthusiasm among women is especially high this year, thanks to an array of female candidates. And all these newcomers to a midterm election, even a primary election, are mostly Democratic and so far only being counted at the ballot box and not by the pollsters. The blind spot is people who don't usually vote. Traditionally, elections have been decided not by Republicans or Democrats so much as by independent voters. This year, there seems to be a fourth crucial pivotal group that's been so far undercounted, those who don't usually vote. Will researchers make the necessary adjustments and make them properly and in time for this election season? And if they adjust their polling to better capture reality, will the new numbers show an even bigger blue wave than the one that's already predicted. In terms of the upcoming congressional election, it's still a bit early and things can change, but as it stands now, the polls and the voters they're not counting lean Democratic, where enthusiasm is much higher than it is among Republican voters. On the slightly risky presumption Democrats will win the 23 seats they need to control the House, there is a chance Democrats could also win control of the Senate, where more than a third of the seats are up for grabs. The answer to any questions about that is a cautious yes. It's possible, difficult, tricky, but doable. The 35 Senate seats in this race are mostly in red states, Trump country, and Republicans only have to protect nine incumbents to keep control of the Senate, while Democrats in several states are hanging on for dear life. The road would appear to be tougher for Democrats in these Senate races. Encouraging for both parties, the polls show extremely close races. 
Look then to the most purple swing state in the union, Florida, where incumbent Democratic Senator Bill Nelson is trying to stave off his challenger, outgoing Florida Governor Rick Scott, who hopes to jump from Tallahassee to D.C. Purple as it is, Florida is at the moment Trump country. The races are tight, though, throughout the country in states where Trump enjoys widespread support. Missouri, Tennessee, Nevada. Early polling, and it is early, shows neck and neck races across the board. Another Senate race to watch, of course, is in Texas, where Democrat Beto O'Rourke has a chance of unseating incumbent Republican Ted Cruz. O'Rourke has such a chance, the Republican Party is pulling out all the stops to try to keep the oddly Trump-supporting Cruz in office. Cruz's Senate colleagues have never liked Ted Cruz, but keeping his seat Republican is job one. The polls show that Texas Senate race to be surprisingly close in the heart of Trump country. One Republican lawmaker says Cruz, quote, has a dogfight on his hands. Beto O'Rourke and other Democrats have a real chance, according to the polls, which we now know have so far been wrong, and this year wrong in undercounting support for Beto O'Rourke and the other Democrats in close races. A new Marist poll says the Dems have a 12-point advantage in the House. Quinnipiac puts that advantage at 14%. Nine Senate races from Florida to North Dakota are too close to call. I hope when the smoke clears, we still have a majority, said a surprisingly subdued Mitch McConnell. The Republican leader of the Senate is worried that voters will flip not only the House this fall, but the United States Senate as well. Such an outcome would give the nation a check and balance against a conservative White House and a conservative Supreme Court. Back in Florida... Faced with serious competition against Andrew Gillum in the governor's race, Congressman Rick DeSantis has resigned, effective immediately, to focus on his gubernatorial campaign. Even with all the Republican advantages now built into our election system, Republicans are worried. Trump is becoming more of a liability now than an asset, and the tax cuts have failed to impress even Republican voters. That in mind, Republicans have announced their plans to make the tax cut permanent for individuals as they already have for corporations and the wealthy. The federal deficit, though, is already ballooning under the first round of Trump-publican tax cuts. This new round of tax cuts would add $2 trillion to the federal deficit over the next 10 years. Democrats are against the additional tax cuts, but would be fearful of voting against them just before an election. Even some Republicans worry they'd look bad to use such a cheap election stunt that could turn out to be very expensive. The election is 54 days away now, and the campaign is now in full swing, as you can tell by the TV ads and by the sudden reemergence of Barack Obama. His message? Vote. The stakes are high in this election, he warned a crowd of Democrats in Anaheim, California. Where there's a vacuum in our democracy, when we're not participating, not stepping up, other voices fill the void. Obama used his audience to talk to independent voters about the importance of this election. I want to even reach out to Republicans, said Obama, and his message to them all, quoting again, if you don't like what's going on right now, and you shouldn't, do not complain, don't hashtag, don't retreat, don't binge on whatever it is you're binging on, don't lose yourself in ironic detachment, don't put your head in the sand, don't boo, vote. For Democratic candidates across the country, especially those in close races, Barack Obama is back on the campaign trail, an effective speaker and the person who still seems best suited to lead his party. By targeting Trumpian politics, Obama has broken with tradition by publicly criticizing his successor and the specific policies of his successor. But rules and tradition went out the window once Trump took office, and as Obama had warned the crowd, the stakes are high in this election. You need to vote, he said, because our democracy depends on it. The consequences of any of us sitting on the sidelines are more dire. And ready or not, the 2020 presidential campaigns have already begun. With Trump already campaigning for 2020, key Democrats are positioning themselves to run in the primaries, and the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh are giving them a launch pad. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has been turning up at anti-Kavanaugh protests staged by women's groups. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is making similar moves and now making herself available for interviews as she travels the hallways of the Capitol. And last week, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker picked up some video exposure, TV and online, 
when he threatened to release emails involving Kavanaugh even if it got him expelled from the Senate. What Booker didn't mention, or didn't know, was that he already had permission to release those emails and no senator has been expelled anyway since 1862. So Booker's dramatics were not necessary, even though the contents of the emails were. The emails had been marked committee confidential. A White House spokesman condemned the leak of those emails to the New York Times. Outrageous, said Texas Senator John Cornyn. Unusual behavior, tisked Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Cornyn and McConnell played into Booker's drama, threatening him with a hearing before the Senate Ethics Committee. Kavanaugh is expected to be confirmed, but on TV and online, Booker looked like a hero who had defied the rules. Also speaking truth to power and getting noticed, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Kirsten Gillibrand. California Senator Kamala Harris was the first to use the confirmation hearing itself as a platform to get noticed, interrupting the proceedings just a dozen words into the very first day of the Kavanaugh hearings. She was promptly ruled out of order, but the soundbite played again and again, painting the portrait of a resistance leader. Democrats are rehearsing and auditioning for the role of presidential candidate. This is not something we will have to watch closely in the extremely important weeks and months ahead. Just know that while we're all focused on the election that's 54 days away, the 2020 race for the White House has already begun. As for those Kavanaugh emails, they deserve more attention, and they've been getting it. Senate Judiciary Committee, at the request of George W. Bush and his lawyers, had marked the emails confidential. That appears to be because it opens wounds and debates from the Bush era, with Kavanaugh's words on issues including warrantless surveillance, affirmative action, campaign finance, and more, including torture. The New York Times got hold of some of the emails Booker had threatened to release from 2003 when Kavanaugh was a lawyer for the Bush administration. In one email, Kavanaugh disputes a claim that Roe v. Wade is settled law, being the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion. In that email, Kavanaugh argued Roe v. Wade is not settled law if the Supreme Court takes it up again and rules otherwise. Settled law, as Kavanaugh correctly reminded, is whatever a sitting Supreme Court says it is, a way of saying Roe v. Wade can be overturned. Back in 2003, Kavanaugh pointed out there were already three justices on the bench at that time who would have voted to reverse that landmark abortion decision. Today, that number is four, going on five, which is one reason so many people oppose Kavanaugh's confirmation and why Republicans support this lifetime appointment so fiercely. Most Republicans, but maybe not all of them. It would take no votes from every Democrat in the Senate and two of the Republicans to stop Kavanaugh's nomination. And it might be possible to get those two Republican votes. Moderate Republican Susan Collins of Maine says she's still undecided, and with a voting record favorable to abortion rights, she may well be persuaded to vote no now that she and everyone else has seen Kavanaugh's emails. Collins' Republican colleague, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, is also pro-choice, and she has now seen the emails as well. And there are the two Republicans who have become the targets of intense lobbying from pro- and anti-abortion groups. And then there are the lies Kavanaugh has apparently told in his past two confirmation hearings for federal appointments. In the early 2000s, a Senate Republican aide named Manuel Miranda stole from the Senate server memos and letters that included Democratic Party talking points. And those letters allegedly wound up in the hands of then-White House staff lawyer Brett Kavanaugh. Under oath, at his confirmation hearings in 2004 and again in 2006, Kavanaugh denied receiving that information. But the emails published this week in the New York Times show Kavanaugh did know of the material because he had reused it in documents he'd gone on to write. The woman who had written those Democratic talking points would certainly recognize her own writing, and she saw it resurface in Kavanaugh's own documents. Several of the Kavanaugh emails are about the stolen Democratic documents he says he knows nothing about. One even carries the subject line, spying. The author of those talking points says Kavanaugh has now lied at least twice under oath, which should not only disqualify him for a Supreme Court seat, but, she says, it's reason to impeach him from his current federal judgeship. Senators Murkowski and Collins have seen these emails, too. 
Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell was hoping for a vote on Kavanaugh's nomination by today. Democrats have been trying to delay that vote by at least another week using parliamentary rules. A year and a half ago, during confirmation hearings for Trump's first Supreme Court pick, Neil Gorsuch didn't hesitate to buck the president. After Trump's personal attacks on federal judges, the conservative Gorsuch bristled. When someone criticizes the honesty, integrity, and motives of a federal judge, I find that disheartening, said Gorsuch, who indicated he'd say more if judicial ethics allowed. But at his hearings last week, Kavanaugh wouldn't opine on Trump calling on the State Department not to prosecute Republicans because it'll hurt their election chances. Kavanaugh wouldn't say whether it's appropriate for Trump to attack an Hispanic judge handling the case against Trump University. Kavanaugh wouldn't say if he agreed with Trump that there were good people on both sides at the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville that turned violent. But just as disturbing, Kavanaugh wouldn't defend federal judges against Trump's attacks. When asked about Trump saying of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her mind is shot, Kavanaugh said he, quote, wouldn't get within three zip codes of answering that question. And most disturbing of all, Kavanaugh's belief that a sitting president should not be questioned, interviewed, subpoenaed, or charged with a crime. That and the fact that Brett Kavanaugh wasn't on the list from which Trump had promised to select Supreme Court nominees. Kavanaugh's name was only added to that list six months ago, right after Mike Flynn flipped from the prosecution and Robert Mueller got hold of thousands of Trump campaign emails. Kavanaugh wasn't on Trump's list before that. But when the Mueller probe picked up steam back in December, Kavanaugh moved to the top of Trump's Supreme Court wish list. Two weeks. It was Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos, whose loose lips launched the FBI's investigation into whether that campaign had connections with the Russians interfering in our presidential politics. Although Papadopoulos says he was not drunk, it was over a few drinks in 2016 that a 29-year-old Papadopoulos with no foreign policy background told an Australian ambassador he could get dirt on Hillary Clinton from Russia. The Australian ambassador reported this to the authorities in the U.S. and the FBI investigation into possible collusion began. Papadopoulos has since said he blabbed because he was, quote, young and ambitious and excited about getting a job in the Trump Energy Department, not because he'd had too much to drink. After initially facing charges, Papadopoulos agreed to cooperate with investigators, but then lied to them repeatedly. He says he was still trying to follow the lead of Donald Trump at that time. Now convicted for lying to the FBI, Papadopoulos has been sentenced to time behind bars. It was a lot less time than prosecutors believe he deserves two weeks, plus a $9,500 fine, a year of probation, and 200 hours of community service. The judge pointed out that Papadopoulos seemed truly regretful about his felonious lies and that 60% of those convicted for such a crime are usually simply sentenced to probation. The judge agreed that Papadopoulos deserved worse than probation, but not much worse because of his clumsy attempts to cooperate and for his contrition. But it was, for the Mueller team, another in a string of convictions and the second member of Team Trump to go to jail. This is the week that Trump and his Republicans have chosen to try to discredit and destroy the Russia investigation once and for all. Trump made up his mind to declassify documents to try to discredit U.S. intelligence efforts to get surveillance warrants on Trump campaign aide Carter Page and to declassify documents about the work of the Justice Department's top investigator of Russian organized crime. House Republicans agree with Trump that releasing this stuff will permanently taint the Trump-Russia investigation in yet another attempt at showing it was an illegitimate probe from the get-go. They say the Carter Page surveillance was improper spying by the Obama administration aimed at taking down Trump. Republicans say Bruce Orr, this Justice Department official who's an expert on Russian organized crime, they say Bruce Orr had improper communications with British spy Christopher Steele, who had assembled the dossier that alleged collusion and a little kinkiness. If these documents are anything like past Trumpublican attempts to scar and derail the Russia probe, Robert Mueller has nothing to worry about. Team Trump also plans to take another run at former FBI agent Peter Strzok with one of Strzok's texts to FBI colleague Lisa Page with whom he had a relationship. No, they're not done with that. In the text being seized upon now by the Trump team, Strzok mentions the Justice Department's media leak strategy. Trump and his Republican hangers-on argue this is definitive proof 
The FBI had a strategy for leaking bad stuff about Donald Trump. Never mind the FBI had a strategy for stopping leaks, and Peter Strzok was instrumental in that effort, and that is the Justice Department's media leak strategy. The latest conspiracy theory of a deep state Justice Department and FBI plot against Trump will play well at Fox News and with Trump's shrinking base, but this latest twisting of reality is also doomed to ultimate failure. But the effort to defend Trump by insulting the integrity of U.S. law enforcement continues. How Trump is like a founding father. The search for Anonymous, Bob Seska, and so much more after this. Just a quick thanks again for your use of my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com, whether you're buying the Woodward book or anything else. Amazon's even selling seven-foot Christmas trees this year. And now I'm addicted to Amazon Prime Music. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make there, so it helps this free weekly report when you're shopping for home, school, church, or office. If you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at Buzz. Burbank.com. And thank you. Donald Trump has more in common than you'd suspect with founding father John Adams. Adams was the second president of the United States, and he was under attack. To many, he was no George Washington. Besides disappointment, Adams and Trump share a crucial weakness, thin skin. Easily offended and bruised by criticism, John Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Act, which made it illegal to, quote, write, print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writings against the president and his cabinet. Fast forward 220 years, Donald Trump proposing changes in our libel law so he can more easily sue Bob Woodward, the New York Times, and anyone else who speaks ill of a president who is, as was John Adams, easily offended and bruised by criticism. And like Adams, Trump claims the reason is national security. It's the phrase Adams and his Federalist Party used in 1798, and it's being used again in 2018 by Donald Trump and his Republican Party to go after the New York Times and its anonymous op-ed writer. Like Adams, Trump has seen protests against him and his policies. Like Adams, the president's party said the critics were trying to undermine his fair and square election. As with Adams, there are again, 220 years later, efforts to suppress and also protect the free press. James Madison spoke up about it in John Adams' day. So, in case you thought we'd never been here before, we have. In 1798, politics was rough and mean and scandalous and graphic. Fast forward to 2018. Speaking of polls, as we were at the top of the program, the news is not good for Trump. His approval rating fell six points in the past month, especially after the Bob Woodward revelations and that anonymous op-ed in the New York Times that went viral. He's back down to a 36% approval rating, mostly abandoned by independents who had previously supported him. Now fewer than one in three independents backs Trump. His disapproval rating, meanwhile, has shot up to 61%, a personal worst for Trump. Ironically, this new CNN poll shows most Americans think the anonymous writer of that op-ed should come forward and identify themselves, even though their support for the president fell after that op-ed piece was published. Fewer than one in three of us trust Trump, and fewer than one in three say they are proud he's our president. Still, 49% of us think he's doing a good job with the economy, and that's traditionally been a big issue in elections, at least in simpler times. The CNN poll does not stand alone, by the way. Trump's dropped four points in the ABC News Washington Post poll, five points in the IBD poll. Bob Woodward's book, meanwhile, sold three-quarters of a million copies in its first day out this week, the biggest opening day for an adult book in three years. It is Woodward's 10th book about U.S. presidents over the past 40 years. Last week at this time, Trump was exploding with anger over the portrait Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Bob Woodward had painted of a White House in chaos and about that anonymous op-ed in the Times from a top White House official that confirmed what Woodward had reported, that they and other Trump aides were often protecting the country from Trump's worst instincts and decisions. The op-ed writer said there'd been talk of invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the man from office, but that idea was shelved. So, wrote the anonymous insider, we will do what we can to steer the administration in the right direction until, one way or another, it's over. 
Trump was furious and cried treason. Anonymous said Trump means gutless, and Trump used the T-word treason, even though it appears the writer broke no laws. But it was President Obama who spoke for most Americans when he said in another fiery campaign speech, that's not how our democracy is supposed to work. These people are not elected, said Obama. They're not doing us a favor by promoting 90% of the crazy stuff out of this White House and saying, don't worry, we're preventing the other 10%. This is not normal, said Obama, calling these dangerous times. Questions remain about that op-ed author's motives, risking their own exposure while confirming a plot inside the White House while they continue to back Trump's agenda and waiting for divine intervention. It's arguably a constitutional crisis, this administrative coup in American democracy. So who is the author? Now nicknamed Lodestar for their use of that archaic word that's also often used by Vice President Mike Pence. The White House has reportedly narrowed its list of suspects down to a few as it hunts for the author of the op-ed that made Trump furious, unsettled many Americans, and confirmed what a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist had reported. The Washington Post reports the president is hell-bent on finding this personal traitor and had reportedly narrowed his suspect list to four people, quote, that I either don't like or don't respect, end quote. There was talk of lie detector tests. From Pence on down, top Trump officials, one by one, have denied they had anything to do with this incendiary piece. Everyone at the top, except Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who will likely be fired anyway right after the election in November, as he and Trump have not been getting along. But we do not know who wrote the op-ed. Educated guessers say it's likely a second or third tier staffer. Donald Trump Jr. told ABC News his father's inner circle has gotten much smaller since that piece was published. He says the president still trusts everyone in his family. We have seen this mystery before. In the summer of 1974, when we learned of an anonymous source inside the Nixon administration nicknamed Deep Throat, despite an intense search for this Washington Post source of 1974, his identity remained secret for more than three decades. Michael Cohen wants his $130,000 back. Even though he was reimbursed by Donald Trump, the ex-fixer wants Stormy Daniels to give back the $130,000 she was paid to keep quiet about her alleged one-night stand with Trump. In return, Cohen says he will free Daniels from her non-disclosure agreement so she can say whatever she wants without getting sued for $20 million, which is what she has said she wanted all along, to speak. It could be argued Daniels has already told this story on 60 Minutes, albeit for a family hour broadcast. Likewise, Donald Trump has released Daniels from that non-disclosure agreement, asking that she, in return, drop her lawsuits against him. Through one of his many attorneys, Trump agreed with Daniels that the agreement was never really valid anyway since he never signed it and that it should be rescinded. The court papers filed by Trump's lawyers say he wants to get past all these lawsuits, and he's asking Daniels to drop his name from her lawsuit against him and Michael Cohen. Trump does not want to be deposed under oath by Stormy Daniels' lawyer. Now that both Cohen and Trump have separately offered to tear up the Stormy Daniels contract, Ms. Daniels' lawyer Michael Avenetti has an answer. No. To both offers. No deal. The lawsuits against Trump go forward. Avenetti does most of the talking, especially now that he's planning to run for president in 2020. Stormy Daniels, not so much. But Stephanie Clifford, who plays Stormy Daniels, did grant a long interview to a Dutch TV network last week talking about how her life has changed from being a porn star with a husband and a young daughter to a single mom political celebrity who lives in fear of her safety, of her daughter's safety. He didn't sign up to do that, she says, of her husband of 10 years. I totally understand. She says the political publicity is what did in her marriage, and she now endures social media attacks about her parenting. Clifford says she feels scared of, quote, some pissed-off Trump supporter coming after me, doing something stupid, end quote. She says she tried going to a concert recently without her bodyguards. Big mistake, she says. When the lights came up, one person spotted her, and soon she was surrounded by a crowd wanting their pictures taken with her. Even if they're fans, she says, it can be quite dangerous. Donald Trump will have to provide written answers under oath in the defamation lawsuit filed by former apprentice contestant Summer Zervos. She claims Trump sexually assaulted her in 2007, and this week, Trump's lawyers agreed to let the client answer written questions 
with written answers. And although Trump won't have to answer anything face-to-face, if he lies, he violates federal felony perjury laws. Zervo's case is one of several similar lawsuits by several other women connected to Trump. Is Trump the problem, or is he a symptom of the problem? If brilliant comedian George Carlin were still alive, he'd likely say Trump's a symptom. The problem is addressed here with some help from the late Mr. Carlin by Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. For the last 50-plus years, the conservative movement has been busily working on developing just the right conditions that have led to the rise of first Dan Quayle, then George W. Bush, then Sarah Palin, and now Donald Trump. The two-pronged approach they've taken has been to undermine the traditional press by creating an entertainment network called Fox News, all the while making sure new generations of Americans are almost entirely uneducated about government and politics by cutting public school budgets and rewriting textbooks. This plan has finally come home to roost in perhaps the most devastating ways possible, so much so that noticeable segments of the conservative movement agree that they've created a monster, Trump. But this crisis we're facing is far worse than Trump alone. Before we dig into that, though, let's review a story from Bob Woodward's bombshell new volume, Fear, Trump in the White House. According to Woodward, the president was being briefed by his former economic advisor, Gary Cohn, on the World Trade Organization. Actually, it wasn't so much a briefing, but a classroom learning moment for Trump. During the lesson on the WTO, Trump spoke up and told Cohn, quote, The WTO is the worst organization ever created. Trump continued by ranting about how the United States always loses its legal cases before the organization. Cohn, of course, corrected the president and told him the truth, which is that the U.S. wins 85.7% of its cases. So, predictably, Trump refused to accept the word of his own advisors and instead bought into a line of bullshit he likely heard on Fox News Channel. This book is filled with anecdote after horrifying anecdote in which the president, despite having an enormous bureaucracy at his disposal, almost routinely believes Steve Ducey and Sean Hannity over his so-called best people. How many times have other members of the administration contravened Trump's Twitter tantrums, whether about Russia sanctions or transgender soldiers and all points in between? The president and many of our own friends and relatives have been brainwashed by Fox News and AM Talk Radio. The real crisis facing the United States and, by proxy, the world, is the fact that tens of millions of Americans are just as defiantly ignorant and as stubbornly misinformed as Donald Trump, suspicious of expertise and buying the word of an entertainment network over actual hard news. Tens of millions of Americans are so dedicated to their support for a man who, for 30 years, has been well-documented as dishonest, disloyal, racist, erratic, and corrupt, that they refuse to accept physical, objective reality. We've said this about certain diehards for many years now, especially the automatons who blindly follow carnies like Alex Jones. But it bears repeating, no amount of evidence you collect from first-hand sources or reputable news agencies will ever harsh their mellow for the cartoon dictator in the Oval Office. Nothing. Those of us who've tried to do it, including myself, are not unlike Gary Cohn, minus the Goldman Sachs fortune, of course, trying to educate people who don't want to be educated by anyone except Tommy Lahren and Brian Kilmeade. No matter what you say or what facts you present, it will always be met with crossed arms and a puckered mouth, soon to be counterpointed by fiction pulled from Laura Ingram's show while dismissing your facts as fake news. Tens of millions of Americans. How can we possibly expect to proceed as a nation based on real politic, facts, math, science, and the expertise of merely thousands? With a voting block of that size, so inextricably married to its willful distrust of factual reality, and with so many of these people running the show in certain states and municipalities, we can surely count on further disasters. Disasters perhaps not on the scale of Trump, hopefully not, but we can surely count on the fact that large swaths of the nation will exist under laws not based on facts, fairness, and justice, but based on utter gibberish. Not too long ago, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby, and against the Affordable Care Act's morning-after contraception coverage mandate. The court erroneously believed that the morning-after pills covered in the law are, in fact, abortion-inducing, even though science and the AMA have determined that they're not. 
Indeed, the Hyde Amendment bans federal funding for abortions, yet the pills covered in the law merely prevent the fertilization of ovum, not the implantation of a fertilized egg upon the interior lining of the uterus. No fertilization means no embryo, which means no conception, which means no abortion. But the court didn't see it that way. Again, in total defiance of the facts. This will happen again and again because way too many of the people around us are just as deluded as their leaders. Speaking of which, the great George Carlin once scolded us for complaining about how much our politicians suck. Everybody complains about politicians. Everybody says they suck. Well, where do people think these politicians come from? They don't fall out of the sky. They don't pass through a membrane from another reality. They come from American parents and American families, American homes, American schools, American churches, American businesses, and American universities, and they're elected by American citizens. This is the best we can do, folks. This is what we have to offer. It's what our system produces. Garbage in, garbage out. If you have selfish, ignorant citizens, if you have selfish, ignorant citizens, you're going to get selfish, ignorant leaders. (sighs) No wonder Trump won. Making matters worse, Russia is actively exploiting this gaping vulnerability, seizing on the mass ignorance and diseducation of too many Americans, flooding the zone with propaganda that's devoured by nearly every single target. What this means, in the end, is we can expect more doofs and would-be dictators to rise up from this ocean of stupid people. The question remains whether we can apply new strictures to the presidency to make sure none of the spawn of this conservative will make it to the White House ever again. There's really nothing more important. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again week after next. I'm taking next week off to travel to a celebration of my dad's 90th birthday. As usual, I'll be covering breaking news via social media and keeping track of developments up to my return so we can pick up right where we left off. Your local hospital may soon be able to get you the generic prescription drugs you need at lower prices. Hospitals across the country, HCA, Catholic Health, Providence, Trinity, and others, have joined a nonprofit group that plans to make its own prescription drugs. Hospitals have been wrestling with shortages of certain generic drugs and paying way too much for others. This nonprofit group has $100 million so far from hospitals and wealthy donors. It hopes to be shipping drugs to a hospital near you next year. Some of us will need that medicine. The Trump administration, in its rush to aggravate climate change, now plans to give a pass to energy companies that release more methane into the atmosphere. Methane is not just a greenhouse gas, it's the greenhouse gas, the worst of the bunch. Energy companies say testing their methane emissions would be expensive. So in its third big step in rolling back Obama-era pollution guidelines, the methane thing is now negotiable. Two months ago, the Trump EPA proposed weakening the rules on carbon dioxide output from cars and trucks. Last month, it was relaxing the air pollution rules for the smokestacks of coal-fired power plants. Relaxing the methane rules makes three in three months. Money, guns, and religion. First to the money. In spite of the chaos that surrounds it, the U.S. economy continues to grow. 200,000 new jobs last month. Unemployment still under 4%. 3.9 is close to a 50-year record. And finally, wages are up a bit. The 3% increases of the past year are barely staying ahead of the inflation rate, but they are the first 3% increases we've seen since 2009. The number of people filing for unemployment, meanwhile, has dropped to its lowest point in nearly 50 years when Nixon was president. The number of job openings has hit an all-time high of nearly 7 million. There are 6.94 million job openings right now in these United States. The number of people quitting their jobs because they found better jobs is also at an all-time high. Job switching is considered a sign of a healthy economy. So is this. Middle-class income hit an all-time high of $61,372 last year, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. It had never before topped $61,000. But the credit doesn't entirely go to that 3% pay hike. 
slow wage growth forced people to work longer hours or to take on outside work. Their incomes boosted so they could pay their bills. Middle class income is finally back to where it was in 2008 when Wall Street shenanigans tanked the economy. The Census Bureau says the poverty rate is down, although that number remains at nearly 4 million people. In spite of the chaos that surrounds it, by all measurements, the U.S. economy continues to grow. Guns, or more specifically bullets. Ammunition is easier to buy than Sudafed in some states. And speaking of medicine, drugstores sell bullets in Georgia. In Texas, even some jewelry stores sell ammo. In Pennsylvania, you can buy bullets from a vending machine. California's taking a different approach. The Constitution may protect gun ownership, but it says nothing about bullets. The Constitution being written when the weapon of choice was a single-shot musket that took a little time to reload. And that's given gun control groups something to work with. They've been proposing taxing bullets, requiring ammo sellers to have licenses, or requiring a serial number on each bullet to make ammunition more traceable by law enforcement and background checks for bullet buyers as well. In Los Angeles and Sacramento, there are already local laws requiring ammo dealers to keep detailed records of their bullet sales. Detectives go through that list every few days to see if any new buyers are prohibited from owning guns. It's paid off, leading to dozens of arrests and the seizing of hundreds of illegal guns. Gang members and registered sex offenders have been among those arrested. The bullet sales log is solving crimes faster, even in cases with no great leads. So now the entire state of California will adopt these same laws. The NRA says law-abiding gun owners are being treated like criminals, and it promises to keep fighting. But California is trending more than ever toward addressing gun violence, starting with an easier fight. Not over guns, but bullets. Levi Strauss, the jeans company, is donating a million dollars over four years to nonprofit groups working to end gun violence, including youth groups, and Levi's is challenging other companies to do similar. And state versus church. States across the country are taking on the Catholic Church over its record of sexual abuse, launching investigations, and handing out subpoenas. One week ago today, the New York State Attorney General issued subpoenas to all eight of the dioceses in that state as that office investigates whether institutions covered up accusations of sexual abuse of children. That's a civil investigation in New York. In neighboring New Jersey, it's a criminal investigation. Those states and others have been following the lead of an attorney general's grand jury in Pennsylvania that accused hundreds of priests of abusing thousands of children, and that went on for decades. Now, attorneys general across the country have pledged to investigate sex abuses by Catholic priests, and they have begun by asking their diocese for records. At this point, it appears most priests are cooperating. These investigations are now underway in Illinois, Missouri, Nebraska, and New Mexico. That's at least seven states total that have taken on the church as the Catholic clergy face their own Me Too movement. Now Pope Francis has called an unprecedented meeting with his bishops to discuss the prevention of sexual abuse in the church. The theme of this Vatican gathering set for February is protection of minors. The meeting was announced three weeks after that damning and specific Pennsylvania grand jury report. Also in this past week, the FBI arrested two men accused of sexually abusing women seated near them on airplanes. Those men now face up to two years in prison. And the 15-year chief executive at CBS was forced to resign after six more sexual harassment allegations. Whether Les Moonves gets his $120 million golden parachute depends on the outcome of a CBS investigation. Now, the head of the CBS News magazine 60 Minutes, Jeff Fager, is leaving CBS after reports he actually fostered a workplace environment of sexual harassment and threatened a CBS reporter investigating it. NBC, meanwhile, continues to fight charges from New Yorker journalist Ronan Farrow that its news division killed the story that ultimately exposed Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein's alleged sexual offenses. Just as his new series was premiering for Netflix, comedian Norm MacDonald said he was glad the Me Too movement has, quote, slowed down, and he defended Roseanne Barr and Louis C.K. It's on Netflix now to decide if Norm MacDonald has a show will be released as scheduled tomorrow. Well, the judge is not going to be happy. 
The Trump administration has officially begun to violate a court agreement, and the judge, already critical of this administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy, is not going to be pleased. One part of that agreement limited the government's ability to hold minors in immigration jails. That number, by the way, the number of migrant kids in U.S. government detention, is now nearly 13,000. 12,800 to be a little more exact. This government data, obtained by the New York Times, means the Trump administration has locked away five times as many kids as were locked behind bars in May of last year. Five times. Trump's Homeland Security Department and his Health and Human Services Department plan to also bypass a federal consent decree that has protected migrant children since 1997. As a result, Trump's anti-immigration campaign will be forced to expand its detention facilities as it keeps the kids separated from their parents longer than has been previously allowed under a long-standing federal policy. The judge will not like this at all. Expect the Trump government to be hauled back into court in the weeks ahead. Flying car update. Why Grandpa just wants to chill and vending machine crack pipes in the third and final segment up next. Life insurance is so important and confusing and a little boring. So only four in 10 of us even has it, even though 70% of us say we know we need it to make sure our loved ones are cared for. Maybe you've put it off because it can be so confusing or because you just haven't had time. Policy genius to the rescue. And now is the best time to buy since rates are the lowest they've been in 20 years. In just five easy minutes, you can compare quotes from the top companies to find the best policy for you and save money. Now is the best time to buy with rates at their lowest in decades, and Policy Genius is the best place to buy, and it's free. It's so easy, you can do it right now while you're listening. Over 4 million people have already shopped for insurance through PolicyGenius.com for life, health insurance, disability, even renter's insurance, and more. That's over $20 billion in coverage. If you've been putting off getting life insurance, there's no reason to put it off any longer. Go to PolicyGenius.com, get quotes, and apply in minutes. It's that easy. You could do it right now. And you should, because rates are the lowest they've been in 20 years. Beloved American actor Burt Reynolds leads this week's passings and passages. He was remembered extensively this week after passing at the age of 82. Also gone this week, actor Bill Daly, who played Major Healy on I Dream of Jeannie and Howard Borden on The Bob Newhart Show, as well as roles on Alf, Bewitched, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Bill Daly and Bob Newhart first met as young men working as pin setters at a bowling alley. Bill reportedly loved life right up to the age of 91. In stark contrast, rapper Mac Miller, whose album Blue Slide Park debuted at number one on Billboard, he was just 26 years old. His cause of death is unknown, but a friend had called 911 saying Mac Miller, Malcolm James McCormick, was in cardiac arrest. Before Mac's death, Ariana Grande had tweeted that she prayed for his sobriety. Singer John Legend is among the latest artists to become a member of the elite club known as EGOTS. That's E-G-O-T for Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. The few who win all four are known as EGOTS. The Emmy for Legend pushed him into that small club after winning a TV statue for producing the Jesus Christ Superstar concert for NBC. Composer Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyricist Tim Rice became EGOTs in that same Emmy ceremony. This elite club also includes, among others, Mel Brooks, Whoopi Goldberg, and Rita Moreno. From the horror franchise spawned by The Conjuring, The Nun is the top movie in the U.S. and Canada this week. It scared up $54 million in its opening weekend. The Meg, after three weeks in the top two, has finally fallen to four. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. The Motion Picture Academy is now abandoning its plans to include a popular movie award for now. The Oscar folk, panicking over dramatic drops in the ratings, had announced a new category, Achievement in Popular Film. The reaction to that announcement was loud and mixed. The Academy was roundly criticized for selling out its quest for quality filmmaking in a transparent ploy to draw more and younger viewers. But the Academy says it also got significant positive feedback, too, and will revisit the idea. The producers of Black Panther say they are relieved 
they didn't want to win a pop movie nomination when what they're really expecting is a best picture nod. A pirate looks at 72. With Florida's legal marijuana industry on track to get a billion dollars, it only makes sense that Palm Beach resident Jimmy Buffett would launch a coral reefer brand. To do this, he's joining forces with his Palm Beach neighbor, Bo Wrigley of the Wrigley Gum Dynasty. A lot of Floridians are doing this. 160,000 Floridians have applied for licenses. Buffett's brand will be marijuana of the medical variety, focusing on health and wellness, chemotherapy relief, pain, appetite, and mood. Buffett says he wanted to connect with a medical marijuana company, not recreational. The whole line, vape pens, gel caps, edibles, and lotions. The Coral Reefer brand will be available at 10 stores in Miami Beach, Jacksonville, and Pensacola by next year and wherever a prescription is not required. Buffett will get royalties for lending his name, just as he has with his restaurants, casinos, clothing line, and beer. He's even put his name on retirement communities. About that, the number of pot users in the 50 to 64 age group has doubled in the past 10 years. Even 3% of those over 65 have had a toke or two in the past year. Middle-aged people are also blazing up more. Weed is not just for young people anymore, for better or worse, and the debate about that continues. And then there's Elon Musk. The young and creative head of a progressive multi-billion dollar company was a guest on the video podcast of comedian Joe Rogan. Toward the end of their two-and-a-half-hour interview after talk of artificial intelligence and Musk's personal difficulties, at the end of it all, Rogan urged the man behind Tesla to join him in smoking a little weed. It's legal, right? asked Musk. It is in California, Rogan correctly told him, handing him the burning blunt. Awkwardly, Musk raised it to his lips, took a puff, and immediately blew it out. That he did not inhale, that he was clearly inexperienced, are facts that should not be ignored, and yet they were. Confidence in this genius had eroded lately with his thinking out loud tweet that he might take Tesla stock private, which launched federal investigations and lawsuits from stockholders. Musk reversed course two weeks later, saying he would keep Tesla stock public. To investors, Musk seems erratic. When they saw him take a toke that was never inhaled, their heads exploded. He had already talked about the 120-hour weeks that he's working, and he's talked about taking wine and Ambien to help him sleep, and now the public weed smoking. Confidence in tech hero Elon Musk was all but gone, and investor money went with it from a company that has not turned a profit in 15 years. While the SEC investigates Musk's stock stunt, Tesla executives have resigned, bringing to 48 the number who have left just this year. Whether Tesla survives depends on the sales of the Model 3 that at the start of summer were being rolled off the assembly line at the rate of 5,000 per week. TikTok. And since last we met, Twitter has again banned conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, this time permanently. He had already been banned from Facebook. Conspiracy theorist, by the way, is putting it politely. Jones screams a lot with the wildest of theories, including that the Sandy Hook massacre never happened and that the survivors we saw on TV were paid actors. Twitter said Jones had violated its policies against abuse, including a live-streamed verbal attack on a reporter outside a congressional hearing. Jones promoted violence by telling his followers to get their battle rifles ready against reporters and the entire news media. Alex Jones was, however, at the back of the hearing room as the Senate Intelligence Committee held a hearing on the steps that Facebook and Twitter have taken to prevent more online mischief in these last two months of the campaign. Alex Jones believes there is a conspiracy in social media he says is biased against those who lean to the right politically. Alex Jones is farther to the right than most. But the Trump-era Justice Department is warning social media companies they may be, quote, intentionally stifling the free exchange of ideas, so even Trump's government is in on this, with the same conspiracy theory as Alex Jones. Congress, by the way, is not happy that executives from Google did not attend the grilling undertaken by the Facebook and Twitter executives. When, you have no doubt asked many times, are we getting the flying cars? Good news. 
an inventor in the Philippines, has just conducted his first successful test flight after six years of development. His ultralight craft flew at an altitude of 25 feet, so he still has some hurdles and buildings to clear. While we bestow our blessings on millennials for their votes in the upcoming election, they may have done permanent damage to the English language. The new Merriam-Webster dictionary includes the millennial words adorbs, hangry, guac, force quit, airplane mode, and rando. Rando because it's so much less work when you leave off that last letter. Just look at all the time and effort we've saved. TL semicolon DR. That's the friendly and popular text response that's short for too long, didn't read it. Maybe that person's hangry. And in case you missed it, the homecoming queen at Ocean Springs High, crowned in a dress at halftime, was back in uniform for the second half as the team's kicker. And then the young woman who had just been pronounced homecoming queen kicked the winning field goal in overtime. No time to celebrate under the Friday night lights. Kaylee Foster had her ACT test bright and early the next morning. And now, around the world, for the wild and wacky. We'll start in the nation's capital, where the fire alarm went off at a D.C. condominium building. There was no fire, so they went to the video to identify a suspect. Some rat, no doubt. I mean, there is no doubt. The video shows it was a rat that pulled the fire alarm. In Philadelphia, over the weekend, it was the annual nude bicycle ride featuring hundreds of naked cyclists. Some wore masks, some wore body paint, some wore fancy hats, most wore nothing at all. And this was not an obscure ride route, going past the Liberty Bell, Independence Hall, and the Art Museum where Stallone ran up the steps as Rocky. Families were there, including a three-year-old child in a child seat. Quoting one participant, I like to be naked. On to Cincinnati. For, for you cynics, Cincinnati. The Ohio Department of Transportation put up one of those green and white highway information signs pointing to Cincinnati. That's when everyone saw the city spelled with an extra I. Cincinnati. A replacement sign has been ordered. A villager in China was rinsing plastic bottles, and some of them apparently still had a lot of soap in them, and there were a lot of bottles. Into the storm drain it all went, along with water from a torrential rain, which left the village facing a virtual wall of soap suds, a suds nami. For a few years now, Nancy Crampton Brophy of Portland, Oregon, has been writing books about women murdering their husbands. She has now been arrested for allegedly killing her own. Her novel, The Wrong Cop, featured, like other women's novels, a bare-chested man. But the story was about a woman who, quote, spent every day of her marriage fantasizing about killing her husband. In her online essay, How to Murder Your Husband, Nancy Crampton Brophy wrote about how to murder your husband and get away with it, describing motives and weapons and some don'ts as well as do's. If you chose dime novelist with the gun, you have everything but the room in this game of Clue. The widow Brophy is charged with murder and unlawful use of a weapon, Police say they are still investigating the motive, so they apparently still have some reading to do. Police in a Long Island, New York town are looking for whoever put up the vending machines. At least two vending machines went up over the weekend, blue and white with red lettering that said just one word, pens. What you get for your $2 is shaped like a pen, but it's actually parts for building a crack pipe, as in crack cocaine. The machines had been repurposed, from their original days as coin-operated tampon dispensers. A city councilman facing outraged constituents notes it's not illegal to sell a pipe, but that the vending machines were installed illegally. Crack meat nut cracker. A man in India has set a new Guinness record for the number of walnuts he could break open with his head in one minute. On video, he beat the old record by three dozen walnuts. In 60 seconds, with the top of his forehead, he cracked 217 of them. One minute. In California, a woman's lawn was stolen. Thieves took a 16-foot-long spool of turf from her front yard, left there by a contractor who planned to return to lay it down. The neighbor's video camera captured the thief stuffing the rolled-up lawn into the trunk of his Nissan Altima. Since this occurred in broad daylight, police are confident they'll find the thief 
probably on the victim's turf. And finally, my obsession with highway spills continues as the stories keep tumbling in. No one was seriously hurt when a semi and an SUV collided overturning the semi. What then burst through the roof of the trailer was kegs of beer. On Monday morning in Phoenix, they had rolled out the barrels. Traffic was jammed in North Carolina when a tractor trailer spilled its load of chicken and bacon. Now it really isn't kosher. Cleanup took hours while cars were backed up for three miles. Nobody got hurt. Except, of course, bacon lovers. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back in two weeks with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.